You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 125 of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and joining me is Neil Hughes. Welcome back, Neil. Victor, how's it going? Pretty well. How are you doing? Doing all right, doing all right. Good. And I hope all of our listeners are too. So, it's been a little while since I last talked to you. Mm-hmm. And in that time, I know that that I've installed iOS 11, you've installed iOS 11, and you've got a load of new devices around that you're trying it out on. So, why don't we dive right in and start by talking about some of those devices that you've got in front of you. Well, let me clarify. Um, I'm only running iOS 11 on two devices. The, the new hardware um, that we've been reviewing um, is we review it as is out of the box. So. Okay, so for example, a 10.5 inch iPad. You're running the OS that it comes with, the iOS 10. 10.3.3 or whatever it is. Yeah. Right, because that's the fair way to review it at this time. Right. It, that's how it comes. That's how people are going to experience it out of the box. That's the right way to look at it. Right. Hmm. Okay, so then let me ask, um, I'm going to separate this out. First of all, let's talk about the 10.5-inch iPad. What's, what's your experience like with it, out of the box? Um, so the 10.5-inch iPad is really nice. I'm working on the review right now, um, and it may actually be up by the time people are listening to this. So be sure to go to Apple Insider and check out my full review. Um, I have been a proponent of the 12.9-inch iPad for a couple of years now since it launched in late 2015. Um, and the 9.7-inch was just a little too small. Um, this 10.5, I think, is a much better form factor than 9.7. Uh, they accomplish this by reducing the bezel somewhat. It's not entirely reduced. There's still uh, a little bit on the sides and more on the top and bottom. But uh, the 10.5-inch um, is just a good size uh, in terms of the on-screen keyboard and just the real estate that you have to really take advantage of it. Going from the 12.9 back to the 9.7 always felt kind of cramped. Um, so I, I really like the form factor. I still prefer the larger size for what I use my tablet for, but I think for a lot of people, they're going to be very happy with this, especially because the bezel size was reduced. So it's not that much bigger than a 9.7. In your hand, it doesn't really feel bigger. You put them side by side and you can see the difference, but it just really feels like the same size and just a little bit more space on the screen. Uh, easier to type. The keyboard is just that that little much bigger. Um I, I, I wait. Think, I, I want to ask: How is the keyboard? Because this was the thing that they said during the Worldwide Developer Conference keynote was that this was the device that was the right size to be able to have a full screen, full size on screen keyboard. Yeah, it's just big enough to to have a full size virtual keyboard. So in the nine point seven inch, it's a little undersized, which makes it a little tricky typing. On the twelve point nine, obviously, you have uh, plenty of real estate, and they can even have a virtual number row, which I love. Uh, this is not the same; doesn't have the full number row and all that. Um, but it does have full-size equivalent virtual keys on the screen, uh, which does make typing easier. Uh, If you're a touch typist like me, um, it's relatively easy to type on an iPad screen, Um, and this offers kind of the best of of all worlds with the full-size, but you can also hold it in portrait mode and and do the split keyboard with your thumbs and stuff like that. I mean, it's really uh, pretty awesome in terms of the versatility. So what's your word per minute like? 
Oh, I don't know, a hundred and whatever. I, I, I don't, I haven't checked it, but it's, I mean, it's fast. I don't, I don't look at the keyboard. Like I don't use the backlight on my keyboard or anything like that. Um, it's not, I, I've been typing for a very long time. I write <laughs> for a living, so. Okay. Well, I mean, I, uh, I've been typing for a very long time, but I've never done formal typing practice. And so I type at about 50 words per minute. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, what I like about using the 12-inch iPad, I have yet to experience the 10.5, but with the 12-inch iPad in landscape, I, I can touch type about as well as I type with uh, a traditional keyboard. Mm-hmm, yeah. Where with the 9.7-inch, I would I would be feeling cramped and I would miss keys and things like that. The, the thing that I know is that for a lot of people who write for a living who use the iPad Pro as their computer, that they prefer the 9.7 because it fits so well in a bag. Right. Yeah, the the twelve point nine is it's it's big, um, nine point seven, ten point five. You know, with with the size change on the bezels and stuff, it's, this is equivalent. People are going to be very happy. You're getting a, a good amount more real estate diagonally without really adding to the size of the device. You you're not really going to notice the device unless you're holding them side by side. It's the same weight. Um, this is a very good compromise that that apple made with a little bit extra size here um to get you know the, having that full-size virtual keyboard makes a big difference obviously I, I can't type as fast on a virtual keyboard as i can on a physical keyboard there are more mistakes but if i'm not sitting down and you know writing war and peace and i'm just you know responding to something doing an email whatever um, you know, it's just, it's that much better when you have the keyboard, but really the, the size difference is, is nice, but really the main difference with these iPads that makes them kind of a, a must have in my eye. Uh, and the reason that I'm personally considering now upgrading my 12.9 inch to the latest model, uh, despite some frustrations with some of the changes is, um, the, the new, what they call the pro motion display. Uh, is absolutely amazing. It runs this 120 hertz. 120 hertz display. Yes. Yeah, and like as soon as you turn this thing on and start going through, you know, the setup process and it just jumping in between the menus is like whoa. It's just a very big difference. It's a noticeable difference right off the bat. Um, you just it's fluid when you switch between uh, app home screens when you're scrolling when you're reading all that like. You don't even, it's one of those things that you don't even realize, like almost like before we had retina displays. We had these low resolution displays. It was like, oh, this is a great screen. And you don't realize that it could be better until you get a retina display. And then you're like, oh, and then you can't go back. I feel almost the same way, not quite the same way, but almost the same way about the 120 hertz display. Um, you you notice it when you go back to a screen that doesn't have it, the scrolling and, and the zooming and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and not just a visual benefit from this, but also uh, responsiveness for the Apple Pencil um, is more fluid because of this um, higher uh, hertz on the display. It, it just it, the the frame rate uh, is buttery smooth. It is stunning. It stands out. It gets your attention, and it looks great. So. Your your verdict is is yeah you're you're thinking strongly about upgrading to the ten point five inch from the twelve point nine. No, I'm I'm thinking about upgrading the, my twelve point nine from the two thousand fifteen model to the current model. Now, 
Um, my reasons for wanting to do that are mostly because of the display. Uh, oh, and the, the new processor is really fast, but it's not like the last one was that slow. But I mean, the benchmarks on this thing like rival a MacBook Pro. It's crazy. It's cra- I mean, it's unbelievable how, how fast they've made these custom processors in here. They're, they're, they're getting to another level. I mean, nobody's in the same level when it comes to to competing with, with the iPad. Nobody, none of these tablets out there are really in the same playing field. It's, it's crazy. There are a few caveats and, um, I'm, I'm a little frustrated by it. Um, the, the biggest one for me is especially with the 12.9 inch model, you're going to drop $800 on this tablet, right? And it's powerful and it's capable and it's awesome. And it has USB three, uh, data and charging speeds on the lightning port. And it ships with a 12 watt brick, the same, <laughs> the same power brick that you know shipped with the first iPad seven years ago. Um, even though that's, that's like the iPad Mini shipping with the one amp phone charger brick. <laughs> it, right? it, it, I'm not really sure why Apple did this. I think that the reason that they did it is because they don't want to make a new USB three power brick with a full size USB port and the 29 watt. Uh, brick that, or you know, I guess plug, whatever you want to call it, not really a brick, but uh, the one okay. that well, comes we'll with the transformer, if you will. Yes, the the twenty nine watt adapter that ships with the twelve inch MacBook doesn't have a full size USB port. It has USB C. Um, so my theory on this is that Apple didn't want consumers who buy a new iPad to freak out when it comes with a. USB-C to lightning cable and they don't want to make a new power brick with full-size USB because that would be kind of kind of going backwards but but so they're kind of between a rock and a hard not place. at all not at all they they just are they also don't want to have to put one more thing in the box well I, I have yeah I regularly use a USB-C to USB-A adapter Right. My, my my USB phone is a, my USB C phone is a Huawei Nexus 6P, which does fast charging over USB C, which is a brilliant thing. Mm-hmm. And the power brick for it has just like Apple's, a USB C connector on it. And sometimes I don't want to charge the the Huawei. Sometimes I want to charge other things. And so I have a USB C to USB A adapter. Right. Belkin makes them. There are tons of reliable companies that make them. And you just plug that into your USB C adapter, and then you plug in your USB cable. USB-A cable, and it works just fine. And I think that the USB connector is the reason that we're not getting the 29-watt charger because Apple doesn't want to ship it with a dongle, and they realize that a lot of people are still charging their iPads through their computer. I mean, I'm sure that they have market research that shows X number of people are doing this. Are they? Or they I have, would like to know that. Or, or they uh, have multiple power bricks that they use or whatever. There's some reason that they cheaped out with the 12 watt adapter, but you got to realize um, the new the new iPads are more powerful than ever, right? They've got these souped up processors in there that are crazy, and they shrink all the components in there so they can fit in larger batteries. So the larger 12.9 inch iPad Pro went from a 39 watt hour battery to like a 41 watt hour battery, and this thing takes forever to charge on a 12 watt adapter. I know. It takes know. forever. You plug it in and you wait overnight. Yeah, I mean it's, it, and you know, it gets 10 hours of battery life and the idling is fine. And all that. Okay, great. This thing needs to be shipped with a 29 watt adapter and the fact that Apple didn't do it 
really ticks me off because the the brick itself is fifty dollars, and then the cable, if you want to get the USB C to Lightning cable, is under twenty five bucks. So I spent eight hundred dollars on an iPad Pro. I want a uh, or six fifty on the ten point five inch model, which is fifty dollars more than it was last year. Now I got to spend another seventy five bucks if I want to charge it at the faster rate. Uh, put it in the box, Apple. I mean, let's let's just move on and stop cheaping out with this stuff. Shipping it with a 12 watt adapter is absolutely inexcusable and very frustrating to me. And I think an oversight by Apple. And it's really the the only major ding I have against a product that is otherwise pretty great. I mean, pretty much flawless hardware. The only problem I can find with this hardware is the stupid camera bump. Like, do we really need a, a, you know, a 12 megapixel camera with flash on a tablet? Like who's taking these photos with their tablet? Just put a flush camera in there and make it eight megapixel. Hold no, up no the need iPad for flash. Pro like you're holding up the boom box if, as John Cusack did, right? Yeah. That's, that's exactly what's going on here is people are videotaping and filming events by holding this thing up above their heads, right? I like that it has the camera on there, but it doesn't need to be that powerful of a camera. You can skimp out a little bit there and put the stupid right adapter in the box with the right power brick. That that's my only problem with this hardware here and it's even more egregious with the 12.9 inch model because at, at $800 to not be able to include a 29 watt adapter in there for f- this huge battery it's got to recharge. I mean they at least should put it in with the 12.9 inch model. The fact that it ships with a 12 watt adapter is is insane to me. And I think that I'm going to give the 12.9 inch uh, model a slightly lower score than the um, than the 10.5 inch model pretty much solely because of that, because that, that, you know, when it takes your tablet overnight to charge, it's, it's inexcusable. It's, 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 that's a bad user experience and there's no need for it to ship like that out of the box. It, it's not like these cables and bricks are costing Apple that much that it's going to eat in their margins to ship it in the box for them. I think that that is the main issue with the 12.9 inch. It's not, it's not even the tablet itself. It's just the accessories that they ship in the box. And it's a shame that they do it that way. So you think about $800 for the tablet, $160 for the keyboard, $100 for the pencil, and then another $75 for the cable and brick. You got a really awesome setup there, but you spent over 1000 bucks on it. Um, it's getting a little pricey at that point, but I mean, I think it's worth it. I think it's a great product. Um, I'm very happy with this update. Um, I think that they did a really good job with it, but just stop cheaping out on the brick apple. Now, wait, does, does for my own clarification, does the 10.5 inch work with USB-C and, and, and the, the, the USB three fast charging? Yes. So this is something that happened that was strange. There were a lot of differences between the 12.9 inch model and the 10 point or the 9.7 that came out uh, last year in in late 2015. So the 12.9 inch came out first. It features USB three, 29 watt fast charging, Um, but it, and it had an M9 chip, but for some reason did not include always on. Hey, I won't say her name. Um, (laughs) She who now shall not be named is that then, well because everything's going to turn on if I do it. Um, then l- the next year, 2016, early in the year, they shipped the 9.7 inch model. They did have hey you know who uh, always on w- without being plugged in, um, even though it had the same processor, which made no sense to me. It gained the uh, True Tone display, which the yes. 12.9 inch did not have, but it did not gain the USB three Lightning port. It only had the USB 2 lightning port, which means it didn't have the quick charge capabilities, which wasn't that big of a deal because it's got a smaller battery. 
Um, you know, you plug that in on the the 12 watt. It charges slower, but it, it's fine. It, it doesn't need it doesn't need as much to to juice it up. Uh, but this year, both iPad Pros have been released at the same time. Both have feature parity, so they both have the same processor. Uh, they both have the same cameras. Uh, they both have True Tone displays now, which is new for the 12.9 inch. They both have the 120 hertz Pro Motion display, and they both have USB 3 Lightning connectors for fast charging. If you want to pay 75 bucks to get it, okay. Thank you for laying that all out for me. Yes. So your personal preference is to get the 12 inch and the 10 inch is a strong, the 10 and a half is a strong contender for people who have the 9.7 inch. I think most people uh, will be very happy with the nine point or with the 10.5 inch. I think that with that some size of iPad at this point, right? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I think that the 10.5 is going to be the compromises that they made to get to the larger sizer are not that big of a deal. I, the, the, the funny thing to me is, the the thing that undercuts the iPad Pro more than anything is the three hundred thirty dollar nine point seven inch iPad because a lot of people buying these tablets aren't going to connect a keyboard, don't want to spend a hundred dollars on the mouse, don't want to spend another seventy five dollars to fast charge. They don't really you need care. An Apple Pencil. Right? They, they don't care about the one hundred twenty hertz display. They don't uh, care that this display is not laminated to the glass. They don't care that it's a little bit thicker because you get basically everything that you would need. The, the A9 chip is plenty fast. Uh, that $330 is packed with value. And for $650 on a 10.5-inch iPad Pro, uh, the value is not quite as packed. And I think that the main thing that undercuts and makes it really the standout device in Apple's lineup is that at $330, bucks, uh, that thing is a, is a bargain. It's a steal. I think that I think that that is the the greatest value currently in Apple's entire product lineup. Let me ask a question. Yes. Because this is something I had not previously thought about. So you take that three hundred and thirty dollar iPad. Yeah. You put iOS eleven on it. Does it gain the dock and the multitasking capabilities that we saw demonstrated in the keynote? All of it. Say what? All of it. Tell me one more time. <laughs> it gets all of it. I installed iOS eleven on an iPad Air two that I have here, and it works great. It's awesome. Really? Really. The $330 iPad is the best value in Apple's product line. That was period. that was one of the things that, that in the past, you know, some of them got the, uh, the, the slide over where you could have the iPhone app running in a strip alongside, but you couldn't pull it all the way and have two evenly spaced out iPad apps running side by side. And uh, you got an A9 processor with two gigs of RAM and it handles it. I'll be. Yep. You can multitask. You can split view. You can slide over. You get the dock. You get all of it. Huh. Yeah, so then... then connect, you, and right. if you don't you, want the smart connector, which it's not like there's any smart connector accessories available other than keyboards, connect a Bluetooth keyboard. Um, get a Bluetooth stylus if you really want something to draw with. I mean, it, it, there are compromises made, obviously, to get to that $330 price point, but that is so cheap compared to... You think about when the iPad first launched, it was 500 bucks. Now the, the Pro is 650 <laughs> We're down to 330 with a with a 9.7 inch screen. The, the the iPad Pro is a great buy for the people that want to take advantage of the features on it. Somebody like me who really likes you know the larger screen and and likes the the 120 hertz display and the smart connector that kind of stuff. Great, but for most people, they don't even need the 10.5 inch. Just get the 9.7 inch. Wow. The entry level iPad is the way to go for a lot of people, and I think that that's going to be I think that's going to bear out in the sales too. Mm. That is something. That is 
really quite something. Oh, cool. But it's a great lineup that they have right now, if you think about it. You know, a lot of differentiation at the different price points to justify um, where they're at. I think that the, the – and with iOS 11 coming, uh, the iPad is in a very strong position right now, much better than it's been in years. Well, so we should talk about that. We, we iOS 11 changes things for iPad more drastically than it does for some of the other devices, right? You, oh, it's you the get, biggest change ever for iPad, yeah. You, you get a dock. Well, we haven't had a dock on iOS before. Mm-hmm. The dock is divided into two sections. It's the applications that ha- are, are mainstays across one side of it, and the other is predictive things where uh, Apple sort of decides what they think is going to come next. It includes things like handoff and, and other stuff in there, right? Mm-hmm. And long pressing on these things can uh, can can show windows of what's available there. It can also help you with your, your files as your uh, or, or drag and drop and drag and drop uh, s- starting the slide over stuff. You can actually do four tasks at once uh, on screen at the same time with iOS 11, even on a 9.7 inch screen. So let's, let's count. First of all, you get split view, which is two apps, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can float another view on top using the uh, slide over style Right, and if you have the 12.9 inch iPad Pro, I don't know if you can do this on the 10.5 because I didn't update to iOS 11. But uh, if you have the 12.9, you can still interact with the apps that are in the background in addition to the slide over one. And then if you throw in picture in picture, uh, that's four apps at once. You're, you're counting video as running as a as a separate app there, correct? Because well, it is. So okay, that's that's impressive. And then obviously, you know, things like location, music, and whatever could run in the background too. So you could run more than four apps at once, but you can have four apps on screen at once. And it doesn't feel cluttered or weird or excessive. Wow. Now, let me ask this. Can you... I I have the feeling that with these big changes, that there's going to be the need for some tutorials on, on how these things work. How does drag and drop work? How does markup work yeah. when you take a screenshot, right? Do you think that Apple's going to supply some of these these um, things to help people learn about them? I mean, I think so. You can see that they're doing you know classes throughout the day at their retail stores now. Um, obviously, there's the Tips app that's installed on iOS devices, um, you know, and when who knows what it'll be like when it actually ships, but... You know, uh, I'm sure that they'll have stuff on their website, and obviously we'll have stuff on Apple Insider. But the important thing to remember when it comes to any of these features that are being added as these platforms get more mature is the power user features never take away the simplicity of the platform. Um, You can navigate an iPhone quite well without ever knowing that Control Center exists. And the only thing that you would miss out on is other than the convenience of having it there, is the built-in flashlight because there's no other way to access in the operating system. But you could download an app to do that too. So um, it's important that as you add power user features, you don't take away the simplicity of how to do these things. You still have a dedicated settings app that you can dig into if you want to turn off Bluetooth and go into airplane mode and whatever. Um, And that's how you move a platform forward without alienating the users that appreciate the simplicity and have gotten used to it. I will say that one of the things that I was slightly disappointed by was that I, I enjoyed using the uh, the the flicking action in the multitasking view yeah. to quit apps, to dismiss applications. And in iOS 11 on iPad, that's no longer the behavior. You have to long press, yeah. tap on an X in a corner to dismiss an application. 
I agree with you, but it's important that people remember that this is beta and things can and will change before launch. So if you're testing the beta um, and you're a registered developer, um, Apple encourages people to send feedback. And so if you don't like that change, I would say send a, send a message to Apple. Uh, but I agree with you. Um, being able to quickly close apps is something that is currently missing uh, in beta one. One thing that is great, though, with the multitasking view um, is you can have apps that are done in split view are in a permanent state. So for example, if I have uh, one task open that is split between Safari and Slack, uh, I then multitask to another uh, combination of music and calendar, uh, both in split view. They, they remain persistent in that state. So when you go back to the other app, it remembers that you had those two paired together. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Now these, this is something that on, on Apple, they've always called this as spaces. In Mac OS X and Mac OS, right. it's called spaces. It's really an implementation of a concept that's been around for decades called virtual desktops. And, you know, on, on traditional computers, you'd arrange your applications the way you'd like on a virtual desktop and then switch to a new desktop or a new right. space, as Apple calls it, and mm -hmm. arrange new applications. And this is the first time that it's come to iPad. What's right. cool about this, as you say, is that they remember which applications are in a space or in a virtual desktop, just as they do on the, the traditional computer. Uh, you know, this was something we were doing in Unix, God, 20 years ago, 30, well, 25 years ago, and we're doing in BOS 20 years ago. Um, the, I, I, you know, I keep Slack and Messages in the same space because they're both messaging applications. And yeah. I do that on, on iOS 11 just as well as I do it in uh, Mac OS. And there are still some things about what happens to an application when it's been placed alongside another one in split view or in slide over mode in a mm -hmm. space on iOS 11. That's, that's, I think, a symptom of it being still beta 1. Um, for example, when I start using messaging apps in messages, but messages is that small strip of a, a slide overview. Yeah. I, I lose the keyboard and I lose the, uh, the the messages app area takes up the whole bottom width of the landscape view, uh, overriding Slack. It's it's uh, there's something that they have to still work out about um, this the space that things should take when they're in a different type of view. Yeah, that's one thing that, especially with a 12.9 inch, that I would like to see improved in multitasking. And I don't think we'll get it this year, obviously, since iOS 11 is announced. But maybe a iOS 12 type thing is. Uh, especially if you're holding the device in um, like a portrait mode um, and you slide or do a split view with an app, um, given how tall the screen is, you get this very awkward, long, skinny, you know, whatever it is with that app. <laughs> and for some, for some apps that might look fine, but for a lot of them, it's a lot of real estate that's really not necessary. What would be nice to see is something that operates like a combination of slide over with um, the way that picture in picture works. So imagine that if you were able to slide over um, an app, uh, like let's say messages would be a great one. Um, you could slide it over, but it would float in the corners and you could resize it as bigger or smaller, but it wouldn't have to take up the entire uh, height of the screen. Um, it would be in more of a iPhone size. So, 
you know, like a 16.9 box that sits in the bottom right corner. You can drag it over the bottom left corner and it stays in a persistent state on top of the screen as you jump between apps. So imagine that you were in a conversation with somebody in messages or Slack or whatever. You have it in the bottom left of your screen. You hit the home button. It's still kind of sitting over there. You can float it and move it as needed when you're reading and moving around. You can pull up two apps at once and it still stays, you know, floating over there. Just like the picture in picture mode works. I think that would be a really great multitasking addition. Yeah. But so to, to tie it together, right, to bring this to, to a head, Apple said for years that we were in the post-PC world. That was the Steve Jobs line. We were in the post-PC era. Uh, Tim Cook has repeatedly said that the iPad is their vision of computing in the future. It's their clearest vision of what computing should be. And I would say that this, this what they've shown us so far with iOS 11 uh, delivers on that promise. Would you agree? Yes. We still have a long way to go, but the improved multitasking, the uh, addition of a uh, file app uni- universal, you know, to save your files and access them between apps and stuff like that, um, m- make a huge difference. The dock, uh, switching between apps, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's a huge difference. But I think that the last missing piece is some form of a cursor input for text manipulation <laughs> um, yeah and and there's been you know there there have been people who've said that holding the your finger down on the keyboard and that turns it into cursor input selection is is the answer to that uh, I, I would I would agree with you that there's still some room for refinement there but I would I be would say, more than okay with mouse and trackpad input that comes with the caveat that no apps on the app store or native can require it Mm. because touch has to be the primary mode of input for this. You can attach a keyboard if you want, but you don't need a keyboard. You could connect a pointer accessory of some type if you want, but you don't need it. Same with pencil, same with everything else. As long as the core functionality of the product continues to work, who does it hurt if we add it in? It does sound. It does feel like retrograde in some ways, though. Well, I, I saw an interesting concept a few weeks ago before iOS 11 was announced, where people were talking about what would happen if they had a trackpad on the new um, Magic or uh, yeah. Yeah, that was Magic a Gruber keyboard. thing he was talking about. Yeah, and and the idea was um, do it like it is on TVOS. So rather than having a physical pointer on the screen, um, if you're on the home screen using a trackpad, uh, the app icons would you know it would go between them as you dragged your finger around but rather than it would select different ones as you moved around yeah right and and that would make some sense i mean i could see that working but it doesn't change the fact that you would still need some form of just specific cursor input for text entry hmm. interesting uh you could do that just as the same way that you use the keyboard on the screen with with the tv remote right. selecting letters Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and let's not forget that, you know, Apple has caved on things like they originally said your games cannot require a controller. And then they said, OK, if you want to make a game that requires a controller, go for it. Um, and, and well, you know, remember so, when you couldn't use the uh, volume button to take pictures? Or you could say that they caved on having a stylus. Right. You could say. That. So. 
when when we talk about them caving, it's that's that's when I go back to what is their vision for the future? What is what's their real goal here, right? And their real goal was for people to replace the computer with the iPad. Mm-hmm. And for some professionals, especially digital artists, uh, when you're saying that the iPad is a wonderful tablet for drawing, you can't tell them that and then not give them a pen. Right. You know, the, the, the we will need, if you see a stylus, they've failed, was saying that if you see a stylus for inputting text and for tapping on icons, it's a failure. Not if you see a stylus for doing digital artwork, it's right. a failure. Right. So they knew that they needed to have one in order to get to the vision of this thing being the tool for professionals, for digital artists as professionals, let's say. Um, do they need to have a trackpad for that to work? Nah, it depends. Let's see what we're talking about in terms of tasks and jobs to be done, right? When when we talk about the other things that they've backpedaled on, uh, you know, when, when they said this is the very best camera that's in your pocket, but you don't have a shutter button, you have an on-screen visual one, so now you have to look at the screen as opposed to your subject, or, or you, know, you can't take your photo nearly as fast because you have to find and tap on the right area of the screen. Uh, using the volume key was the right answer. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's not about drawing a firm line in the sand and saying, we'll never do that. It's about figuring out, is this something that has to be done in order to get to the goal? Right. What is Apple's goal here? What are we actually trying to accomplish? Who are we doing it for? And what do we need to do? And if that involves backpedaling, so be it. I've been saying for years now here on the podcast, you know, Apple needs to take the training wheels off of the iPad. The, the hardware is there. The software needs to catch up. This is oh, a huge leap forward for the software. Huge. If if the $330 iPad does all that you say, then then haven't they just done that? Aren't the training wheels falling off now? They are. Yeah. I, I, I There's still a ways to go, but it's a huge step in the right direction. Absolutely. I am impressed. I want to change gears completely, and I, I'm going to go ahead and bring this up because we were just talking about Apple's vision and what they're trying to accomplish. Let's talk about HomePod. Mm-hmm. So, I, I I bring this up because I've I've been looking at for a long time the different types of voice speakers that are voice assistant speaker products that are out there: Alexa products, Amazon Echo products, the Google Home products. Um, the different voice assistants, you know, Viv that turned into Bixby or Viv that turned, got bought by Samsung who released Bixby. I'm still not entirely certain that Viv is the basis for Bixby. Um, things like this. And I like the idea of a voice assistant. So they introduced this speaker and they're calling it HomePod and they emphasize its music features first and oh, by the way, it has series second. And that was interesting. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is they, they the three forty nine price tag, right? Which is far higher than Alexa or Google Home. So, what is the vision? What is what is Apple's goal by introducing this thing? You know, maybe it's a, a backdoor way into putting Siri in your home in a you know more permanent way. The way that they're pitching it is more of a music device than a Siri device. And I think that makes sense for a number of reasons, namely the price. For $350, they can't say this is an Echo competitor. They have to talk about how they differentiate it. And 
I think that having a premium speaker has a market. I don't know how big that market is, but um, for somebody like myself who is a big fan of airplay and has speakers throughout my home to listen to music, I think it's a great product. Um, and uh, I, I really like that. You know, the, the iPod Hi-Fi was an earlier stab at this and uh, largely a failure. Um, I own one. And it was a great product, but the market for it wasn't that big. People that really didn't see a need. And this product may do the same thing. I don't know how it's going to pan out for them, but I'm excited for it because I want uh, some form of an Echo competitor that is not, you know, listening for what I want to buy on Amazon. And I want uh, a great speaker. So, yeah. Well, so... There, there are a couple of things to unpack here. I, I think the first thing is that there are a limited number of, of companies that can sell an audio product for 350 bucks. Yeah. And if I had to name them, I'd say their names are Bose, Bowers & Wilkins, Beats. Um, Sonos. Sonos. And, and I start to run out of answers after that, don't I? Yeah, I mean, there's some other niche. Like, I have my Master and Dynamic headphones that I love. Yeah, Master and Dynamic. They just launched a speaker. Uh, speaker. Libratone. Yeah. Libratone is pretty good in there, yeah. right? They they can do it. Sennheiser. Uh, uh, nah, no. They make studio they make, headphones. They make okay cans, but they don't make speakers. Yeah. Not really. Yeah. Um, Oh, who was that weird one that Mikey reviewed that I saw in the Newark airport? Oh, um, they have a store in Soho here, too, actually near the Apple store. It's called... Uh, they sell it at the Apple store, too. I think it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I can't think of the name of it right now. But yeah, it's um, Diviolette Phantom. That's the Diviolette. <laughs> that thing is... It's awesome. Uh, it's, it's absurd. It's it, beautiful. It, it, and it's... <laughs> It's great, but yeah, I mean, that's that's super niche. That's beyond niche. That's 10 yeah. people in the world own one. Exactly. Um, right, so I, I have not used all the fingers on two hands yet, is, is how far we've come. We've run out of people who can do that. So the question is, is first of all, can Apple do it after having failed the last time around? Grant, I grant you that was 10 years ago, right? Yeah. That was, that was uh, 10 or 11 years ago. It was 2008, basically. So, and and second of all, so who, who are the people that are supposed to buy this? They're not Sonos users. They're Apple Music users, right? There are 27 million Apple Music subscribers. So what percentage of that do they think they're going to sell this thing to? I, you know, how, how do you measure success on something like this, right? I mean, we look at the iPhone, obviously, that's a colossal success. Um but then you start to go further down Apple's product lineup, and it's like, uh, you know, the iPad sales are down, but they're still moving $10 million and a quarter. That's pretty impressive. Um, the, you know, Apple Watch, they're not announcing numbers, but even if they're selling 2 or $3 million in a, in a quarter, that's a pretty good number. Um, they just refreshed the MacBook Air, the, the outgoing non-retina. The 13-inch. Because they want to maintain that, you know, sub $1,000 price. How many of those are they selling? I mean, they're selling four or five million Macs in a quarter. Are they selling 500,000 MacBook Airs? Are they selling 200,000 MacBook Airs? I don't know. Um, how many of these do they need to sell with the HomePod? Do they need to sell half a million? Do they need to sell five million? Do they need to sell, you know, I, I don't know how you 
consider it to be a success because I don't know that it really matters that much. Um, I think that as long as the product does what it aims to do um, and can, you know, appease the bean counters at Apple, I think that we don't need to worry about the success of it that much. I think it's going to be fine. I think there's a built-in audience of, you know, probably a million people that are going to buy this thing no matter what. And Apple continue to make it and it'll kind of be one of their niche products. You know, it'll be something off in the corner at the Apple store. I don't see this being, this isn't, this product isn't that big of a deal for most So, people. so when you say they can sell a, a million units, that's fine. What I'm thinking is that's probably just a, a, an extrapolation of scale because when I was making products years ago, I used to say, look, we can sell 50,000 units of anything to right. nerds, right? right. You, you, you can make some off the wall wacky thing that barely even functions and sell 50,000 of them. It's, it's getting past that and selling to, to people who are on the other side of the early adoption curve that is the difficult thing. So that's your hundred, that's, that's your million units is that Apple can sell a million of these things to anyone just because they're Apple and they're that big. The question I have is, is so what's their vision for this thing? Is their vision to sell it to their Apple music subscribers to listen to Apple music through? Is their vision that this thing is the missing piece of the puzzle in HomeKit? Um, is is this the thing that fixes airplay for multi-room? What what what's what's the purpose of this thing, and why are they making it other than, you know, someone convinced Tim Cook that they wanted to make music stuff again? I think all the above. I think that uh, it's a space that they wanted to get into because they don't want to get pushed out by Amazon. Um, they need to offer something that competes. There's clearly a market for it. I don't think that they necessarily know what it's going to become. They're, they're marketing it as a speaker because that justifies the price. But we may see two years down the road, a, you know, HomePod Nano that costs $99 and doesn't have the same sound quality, but does, you know, Siri or whatever. Um, we may see, you know, a high-end uh, uh, HomePod Pro for all we know. I mean... Who knows where this product goes, but I think if you look at the success that they've had with the Apple Watch, that might give you an idea of their ability to kind of uh, pivot and focus on what's working and diminish what is not working. Um, I think that that's but that's precisely what concerns me is because the Apple launched launched the the Apple Watch rather launched without a a super clear vision or statement for what the thing should do and why you should buy it. Right, it, mm -hmm. it was. It does all these things, and if you hear one of those things that resonates with you, then you should buy it, as opposed to Apple being able to tell you clearly, like they did with the iPad, this is the best way to sit back and have a relaxed computing experience. Was the first thing that that Jobs pitched it at in 2010. You know, you if, if HomePod is another one of these things like the watch where we make this thing, it does all this stuff. And by the way, if one of those resonates with you, you might want to buy it. Then we've got another two years of Apple figuring out what HomePod is for. I mean, I think my biggest problem with HomePod in terms of being a big, you know, multi-million selling success is if I give you $350, let's imagine that the, the HomePod is out today. It's in the store. I give you $350. You walk into an Apple store and I say, buy one thing with this $350. What are you going to buy? Are you going to buy the HomePod? Are you going to buy a 9.7 inch iPad? Yeah, I'm saying. Are, are you going to buy a $350 <laughs> Apple Watch? Are you going to buy, because I mean, 
there are a lot of products that for that price in Apple's product lineup are way more appealing. I think that an Apple Watch is more appealing to more people. I think that uh, iPad is more way more appealing to more people. Um, so I think that, you know, uh, the, the HomePod is not going to be a, a move the needle for Apple. It's just it's not that kind of product. It's a speaker. And I think that as long as they have that goal forward in mind, um, I, and I think that, you know, unlike years ago when the Hi-Fi came out, um, I think this is more of a storm that they could weather with enough cash in the bank that it doesn't matter. And much like the Apple TV was a hobby before they launched an app store for it, uh, this can be a presence for them and a way for them to get their foot in the door in a market that they see becoming a bigger deal in the future. But while that shakes out and while consumers continue to get comfortable with the idea of a speaker in their home, you know, I was just watching uh, um, Colbert the other night and uh, um, uh, an actress was on there and she was talking about how uh, she, you know, threw her Amazon Echo in the closet because she didn't like that it was constantly listening to her and her kids around the house and stuff. That's a very common comment that I hear from a lot of people. People are not entirely comfortable with these products. And that might be one of the reasons why Apple priced it the way that they did, designed it the way that they did, and are marketing it the way that they are. Because I think that there's still a reluctance from consumers to have that sort of a product. And I think that maybe they're letting the market shake out and giving it time until people get more comfortable with Siri constantly listening to you to really, uh, you know, take the training wheels off. Well, and they said that Siri listening to you doesn't send anything to them until you intentionally direct it to. That is exactly why they made it a point to emphasize that. Yeah. Um, The same reason that the Apple TV requires you to press a button on the remote for it to, to talk to Siri on that. Apple makes all these decisions for very conscious reason. And I'm sure they have all kinds of internal market research that shows that there is a reason to do this. Is that good for Apple's long-term success though, right? One of the things we've talked about in the past is that you, you to, for machine learning and for uh, artificial intelligence, you need to have large data sets. Right. Are, are they intentionally crippling themselves by take by by planting their flag on this hill i don't know um you know there were reports of people that work in ai that you know were leaving apple or were moving on to other places because they couldn't even publish their research which is a big part of you know working in machine learning and stuff like that they've since relaxed on some of that i think that apple takes a very conservative slow approach to these things like we talked about before with the ipad and bringing in a stent or a, the pencil and a stylus all that kind of stuff and i think there's something to be said for that because um it allows us to kind of pause and think about these things and, and do them in a way that's not so haphazard and and is smart and is measured uh and done right and i think that apple's approach is going to be okay because not only do they have the brand cachet and and people that are are buying in, but it's still a a niche market. It's not like it's out of hand that you know it's gone. It's not like Windows Phone coming to market and trying to catch up with iOS. You know, like it's not like everybody's got an Echo. Uh, this is a thing that Amazon is pushing, but it's still a novelty. And if it becomes a thing and it becomes, you know, like they're selling tens of millions of them or whatever, uh, Apple's is going to be in on the ground floor at this point. Well, and Apple's never been afraid of being second with the right product. And this thing, the, the HomePod has an A8 chip in it, which is not too shabby. Uh, presumably, it's going to have capability of software updates. And considering that Siri depends a lot on the cloud, 
Um, this is the kind of product that could be updated and remain relevant for years to come. As the market evolves and changes and as people expect more and want more and demand more, uh, you could expect to see the HomePod become whatever it needs to be uh, in much the same way that watchOS was reimagined after it was you know, refocused w- with what people were using the product for. Hmm. My one thought is, is that you know, Google and Amazon are taking very different approaches to adoption here. Uh, Amazon and, and Google are both encouraging third-party manufacturers to build their AI into third-party speakers and third-party products, right? You know, into the Echo B thermostat, which has Alexa built into it, or the uh, the HMDX Jam speaker that has Alexa built into it, or the the ones that I sent you a picture of last week that have. Uh, the ability to pair multiple units, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there, there's uh, an Amazon Alexa-enabled speaker that you can pair multiple units with and have multi-room audio going on. Um, you know, we're not that far away from someone like a Sonos, a, a reputable speaker manufacturer, building in the voice assistant into their good speakers. Right, but, I mean, it's, and, it's, it's, not, it's not like the barrier for entry for Amazon Echo is high. You can get a dot for, what, like $60 or something? You can get a dot for 39 bucks if you have Prime and get the coupon. So there you go. I mean, so yes, is it an approach that these companies are taking by letting anybody install it on anything? Sure. Does it really matter? I don't think so. Well, the idea is that you don't have to necessarily end up buying a dedicated speaker unit. You can buy just whatever accessories you're going to be buying anyway. And, oh, look, they all have that one assistant built in. Yeah, I get. I, mean, <laughs> I, get, I, I, know, I don't see that moving. You, uh, you you bought a light bulb, and by the way, it's got a light. <laughs> yeah, great. Just what I wanted, right? This is like my my 4K Sony TV with Android TV on it. It's like just yeah, I want to unsolve it. I want it gone. Well, yeah, and you can't. And <laughs> it's terrible. Are, it's like it lags just from but you navigating the. You menu. are on the so you you discovered that it lags, right? You discovered that it's unsuitable and you don't like it. But a lot of people shop with these things in mind or or shop and see that as a bonus, right? The, well, it's easy. Uh, the it's t- got a button on the remote that says Netflix. I exactly. mean, that's why they do it. Well, and TCL that makes the uh, the Amazon Fire TV. They've, for yeah. years, they made Roku TVs and had Roku built in. And at CES, they showed and are now selling a TV that, that has the uh, essentially an Amazon Firebox built into the TV. I mean, these things will get there eventually, but the, the fact that, you know, you spend this kind of money on a TV and then the menu lags, it's like, this is crazy. Well, here's, here's what the problem is, right? The problem is that the, the cell phone is an every two-year device. Yeah. Sometimes more frequent, sometimes less frequent, but more or less, it's an every two-year device, yeah? Right. Would you agree? Yes. Okay. What is your buying cycle for a television? Five plus years, closer to 10 for most people. Right. And so do you want an Android phone, essentially, in your TV? No. After five to 10 years, not getting updates and generally being lousy, especially as either the apps are updated and make it all worse, or the apps are not updated and it just continues to be terrible. Well, this is the same problem that exists in a number of other markets, whether it's PCs, whether it's TVs, whether it's tablets. All these companies want to get faster product cycles with faster upgrades, but because they're so expensive and because the devices are so capable, people aren't upgrading as fast as they upgrade their phone. Well, no, we never change TV. TV cycles as 10 years has always been about the case. 
Right, right. But the the TV makers would like to change that, is what I'm saying. Oh, they absolutely so would, and that's, that's why, why they you tried see three D. Yes, you see all, all these nonsense things, features, yes. and it goes way, way back when it, you know, when we were starting out with HD, and then they started doing 120 hertz because that does you can divide 120 by 24 to get 24p. Uh, true cinematic frame rate on a film. And then they said, well, we'll do 240 hertz. And it's like, what's the difference between 120 and 240 hertz if nothing's running at that resolution? Uh, 240 hertz, you know, like it was like, okay. You need it for sports. Yeah, it doesn't (laughs) really. And then, you know, uh, auto motion plus and these other gimmicky soap opera effects. And uh, and they went 3D and they went smart TVs and now it's 4K and now it's curved displays and 8K and God knows what else they're doing. Um, th- there are all kinds of gimmicks being thrown out there in hopes of getting people to buy, and none of them have caught on. There was a huge changeover in televisions when HD came out, and they've been trying to rekindle that magic ever since, and none of them have worked. Not even smart TVs. Well, that's because smart TVs are universally, the smart features are kind of terrible. Right. The smart features never see the updates that they should to and keep them TV working. your TV spies on you. And yes, your TVs can spy on you. And they spy interesting ways, right? They're not they're not using a camera and actually spying you all. Although some use the uh, the microphone to to listen and mm-hmm. kind of things, but but what they're doing is they're capturing frames from what you're watching, mm-hmm. and then recognizing that image to report back what you've been watching. And that's terrifying. Well, you have choices. You can turn off the Wi-Fi to your smart TV and not use it, and use some other third-party box out on the others on the HDMI cable. Right, you can plug in your Apple TV or your Roku or whatever, and uh, and if you have Wi-Fi turned off, it can't capture. Here's my question: Since we're talking about TVs, yeah, we have a new Apple now post WWDC HomePod. I think we both agree is a pretty niche product. Um, iMac Pro. How many of those are they going to sell? Uh, they're not afraid right now to get into some. Uh, areas Are where they're not going to... What if they sold the TV? I mean, we're, we're sitting here talking about how crappy the market is. You, you never go full Munster. You don't have to ever <laughs> go full Gene. I mean, I don't think they're going to, but... Nah. Uh, they are getting back into the monitor business because they tried to hand it off to LG and LG botched it. Um, so they're going to get back in the monitor business. They're going to be having panels made for them in, you know, whatever, so they can sell with a Mac Pro that comes out next year. Eh, you know, up, up the size of 60 inches. I, uh, um, I'd buy it. You would. You would too. I would not. Really? You want these dumb smart TVs they got right now that are spying on you? No, I'd rather have dumb TVs that don't have any smarts to them at all. Well, good luck buying them because they don't make many of them anymore. No, you, go you can't get them. Dumb. You can get They're them. hard to find, especially on the high end. Want. It, well, that's just it. They're not what you want because they aren't the high end. Right. They're not going to have 4K and they're not going to, yep. Yeah. And so we ask, why is Apple getting into the HomePod market? Well, this is one reason right here, because you want the convenience of an Amazon Echo, but you don't want all the creepiness and and garbage that comes with it. That is a reason for Apple to get into the HomePod market on its own. You want the capabilities of an Amazon Echo, but you don't want all the garbage that goes with it. And so for Apple, they could just enter a market based on that just to say, we're going to offer an alternative. It's going to be a user a pro user experience. You're going to be happy with this. You're not going to be creeped out. You're not going to think that it's weird. Uh, I think that's a good justification for them to enter a market. I'm okay with that. Not everything that they release has to be a home run. Not everything needs to 
to be the next iPhone. They just need to make good products that people want. That's true. Let's talk about ARKit then. Sure. The demos that we saw were that you could place objects on a table virtually. You could have the lighting shift around them correctly. They could pop up an old west cowboy town and have airplanes going around and buildings destroyed and things. And they also showed us Pokemon Go re-rendered with ARKit. Um, What are the best applications for this, do you think? Um, I think that, you know, we've talked about this many times before. Apple's going to get into AR, VR. What are they going to do? Are they going to make glasses? Are they going to make a helmet or whatever? And and I kept saying, no, they're going to create a platform for people to do this. And this is exactly what's happened. Um, Ways that you might see um, it integrated into apps. Well, I mean, you've already seen some of it now. Some of the more popular ones, Pokemon Go, obviously, and Snapchat with their filters. Um, That kind of stuff, um, I don't know how valuable it is, but people like it. It's gee whiz, kind of neat, kind of cool. And it's not like the Snapchat filters are going away. People love them. So uh, it's not a fad like Pokemon Go was. So I, I think that you know, to offer a platform to make it easy for developers to do that is in Apple's best interest because then if you want to have those kind of experiences, um, you need to get an iPhone. And, uh, you know, I, I think that for 3D integration with, like, maps, uh, they're talking about, like, indoor mapping kind of stuff. Uh, imagine, you know, holding up your phone and being able to uh, see where you're going. You know, some apps have done stuff like that. Um, there, there's all kinds of neat little gimmicks that you could do, but I, I don't know that it's going to be some sort of like game changing type thing. Uh, but I think that to be the premier AR platform is good for Apple in the long run. I agree that it is, but I keep looking for ways that it goes beyond entertainment. You know, are, is, is this simply something that people are going to use to develop more apps and therefore charge more money and Apple's going to pay out more in the Apple store and take their 30%? Or is this something that people can use to generate real real cash? You know, is this something that has retail applications? Is this something that has other business implications is something that's interesting to me. I, and we saw that they did beacons. Remember beacons? Yeah. Right, iBeacons? Yeah, they still do they put. Yeah, they still do them, but you don't hear about them as as enabling business cases the way you used to right right the, uh, there was there was this idea for a while that everyone was going to put beacons in all their shops and as you'd walk through all their shops you'd get little announcements for offers and things like this and that hasn't come to be hasn't come to fruition so you know i'm wondering does ar and does ar kit enable new experiences and new new business cases that we haven't seen before I think that, you know, there could be some retail uses for it. There could be some educational uses for it. Um, Obviously, games and gimmicky stuff like that. I don't think it's going to be essential. Uh, I don't think that it's going to be, mm, you know, a crucial part of the platform. But I think it'll be popular. And I think it'll help drive iPhone sales. Because imagine if, you know, Snapchat filters or your Instagram pictures or whatever look that much better on an iPhone because not only does it have great hardware, great camera, great design, everything else, but there's certain software and and other capabilities within the device that you can't get on an Android phone. Um, and especially stuff that you share, like Snapchat, uh, that makes people want to buy in. That makes people want to get more. You know, I've heard a lot of people say that the portrait mode, you know, is like a game changer for them on the 7 Plus, the simplicity of it, all that kind of stuff. 
that's the kind of stuff that Apple is going to do with their platform to encourage the stickiness, as they call it, people to stick with it, but also to draw on new people. If you can imagine, you know, this fall with all these AR apps coming out and you can't get them on Android, that's going to be a huge boon for Apple. Mm. Yeah, even more so than it already being the popular phone to have. Well, you see all the YouTube videos that are out there now just with iOS 11 beta and the uh, uh, Unity or whatever engine from Unreal. Um, mm-hmm. And you can demo the the AR stuff. And people are, you know, just like putting up pretty basic videos of, you know, an object floating in the middle of a room or whatever. And it works so well that and, and this is just a proof of concept to show developers how easy it's going to be for them to implement AR as that becomes true and developers start to integrate AR into their apps, you're going to see better apps on iOS and that's going to result in more sales for Apple. Definitely. And I feel like there's there's a lot of great places where this kind of AR and casual gaming could work well together. You know, you could do things with the airplane tray table. You could do, you know, all sorts of things as, as having objects that are around all the time set the stage for this AR stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's it's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm just, you know, racking my brains to see where else it goes and and how far is their vision on this yeah i don't it'll be interesting to see i I don't know like you said most of the stuff seems pretty gimmicky seems like games and stuff like that but it's fun let me let me throw this out there just to to annoy everyone who's ever thought about the uh, the apple car and project titan right we haven't heard a whole lot about that in a long while uh the last piece of news we had recently was a bit where uh, Tim Cook let on that they were working on um, automated driving. Mm-hmm. And what if the AR kit becomes the HUD, the heads up display? Right. That's you interesting. I, I think your GPS navigation about- is broadcast onto the road as you drive. Yes. Signs are made. Signs are digitally enhanced to be more clear to let you know where you can exit to the bathroom. Lane guidance, whatever, all of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just making that up as I go, but it it seems like that's an you know maybe what if what if AR kit is something they made for themselves for something like that and are now releasing to the rest of us because why not? Well, imagine um, in terms of. Uh, filmmaking or just home movies or photography, right? So a very popular app from years ago and one of the earlier, I would hesitate to call it augmented reality, but I guess that's what it is. J.J. Uh, Abrams' team was behind it. It's called Action Movie. It's a popular iOS app. And it just allowed you to have, you know, like uh, a character from a movie or something like an explosion or whatever, and you could put it in whatever you were filming, and it like was a you know mix of digital effects with what was going on in the real world. You know, you could have a missile fly over your shoulder and hit whatever is in front of you. So take that to the next level with AR, right? Uh, you no longer need a green screen. You no longer need a ten thousand dollar camera and a rig and a set and all that kind of stuff. You could do it in your home with your phone. Um, you have a camera that can sense depth, can figure out what's in the background, remove it from the shot. You can have an app that brings in 3D characters and has you interact with them and stuff. Um, there's, I mean, again, it's all gimmicky and really not really necessary, but you could say that about most technology these days. But that kind of stuff is really, really cool, and people are going to be sharing it, putting it on YouTube, putting it on Facebook, well, putting it on Instagram. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, because getting rid of green screen, so the chroma keying, which is what green screen is, yeah. is... There's a bit of an art to it, right? Sure. You, you have the screen, 
you have to select the right background. You have to get their lighting so that it matches what you're doing with your light source in the background. If you don't film it right, uh, then you can get green reflections onto the skin that become hard to get out without taking out the extra skin. There are all kinds of little intricacies to doing green screen well. Right. Um, and I have yet to find an app that I really like for doing it. If, if our listeners have some recommendations, I would be happy to hear them. Mm-hmm. Because I, I do own a green screen, if you will. Um, and I have I've shot ki- my kids in front of it and had them do things and then you know turned that into movies, um, and it's fun. But being able to take away the green screen opens up a whole lot of possibilities. Right. That could be so cool. And, and that's they're not just fun possibilities; they also become business pro- possibilities because then they can be, you know, a part of industrial films that you shoot for work. They can be part of, you know, your weather broadcast. Uh, which is the traditional use for green screen. Imagine shopping at Ikea. You are looking at a couch. You want to see what it's going to look like in your home, and you want to see if it's going to fit. Um, You have an augmented reality-capable device that, uh, especially on an iPhone 7 Plus with two camera lenses, um, can sense depth and measure things and all that sort of stuff. And now you can visualize it right in front of you on the screen. You can see what yeah, it looks like. You, 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 can... know, I, you know Ikea's all over that. But Ikea's been into this thing kind of thing for years, right? The, the whole Ikea catalog, if you get the Ikea catalog, whether it's the app or the printed booklet that they'll, they'll mail you, everything in there is a complete fiction. Right. Everything in the Ikea catalog is a lie because every part of the Ikea catalog is a digital creation, not a photograph. Right. The the plants, the furnishings, the furniture, the accessories, pretty everything is digitally created. And it's all models that they're placing in a 3D tool in the space, in the room that they create, and then rendering. Every part of it. So going with ARKit is, is one more step in this mission that are already on. Imagine um, wanting to paint your walls, and you could imagine, uh, you know, you could visualize. I don't it. want to imagine painting my walls. Thank you very <laughs> but much. But with I've an app, it. with with AR kit, you could do that. Imagine that you were going on a a, a tour of an old city. Um, you know, you're going through New York, and and you're in a, a place where something famous happened a long time ago, and you could hold up your phone and, and see it recreated in front of you, and it overlays over the buildings, and the streets change to, you know. Dirt or We've been trying that one for a while. We used to have the uh, there was an AR style Wikipedia app where you'd you'd right. hold up your phone and it would overlay the Wikipedia photo on top of the existing reality. That's, yeah, we've and been doing that for about ten years. But th- it's always been junk. And now with AR Kit, it could actually be useful and simple for developers to create. And that's where you're going to see the value in it. It, it, What is it capable of? It's capable of everything and nothing at the same time. All right. Just because we we keep coming back to pro users, um, we we have two things that were in this keynote that I think were for pro users, right? I would say the iMac Pro very clearly, even though they said, we all know this is not the Mac Pro, but we think we can do an iMac that's for a pro user. Here's an iMac Pro. Uh, how do you think the people that were at our Adorama event would receive that? Uh, I mean, I think it's expensive, but if you compare it to if you were to want to build your your own, um, there's always this idea of, oh, I can you know make my own computer and it's so much cheaper. The Hackintosh. People, yes. people tried to take the specs that uh, were announcing this thing and they could not compete with the price. And then that doesn't even include the 
convenient uh, all-in-one design display. Uh, yeah. the display i mean yeah uh people people are going to complain no matter what but uh, i think that any pro user should be very happy with the announcement and the uh the external gpu kit the external GPU kit is really exciting to me and something that I want to embrace. And I'm thinking about upgrading to a new MacBook Pro with USB-C and Thunderbolt 3 just to take advantage of it. There is one huge caveat that is bothersome for me. The, the landscape right now with the eGPUs is a little mm, crazy, as are the landscape for Retina caliber displays, external displays. So if you want to use an eGPU, it does not work with the built-in screen on your MacBook Pro or your iMac. You have to use a separate screen. So um, that kind of defeats the purpose of these gorgeous displays um, and is kind of frustrating to me. And if you want to use, for example, the ultra-fine uh, 4K or 5K displays um, that are out right now, you could not use those with these external GPUs because there are no external GPUs and no graphics cards that support USB-C or Thunderbolt 3. And it seems like it would be certainly possible to have it redirect to the internal one. Uh, unless there's something you lose about bandwidth, the way, that's uh, the, way the way that it's hardwired, um, you lose about twenty to thirty percent of the capabilities for the people that have hacked it together. On Apple's own website, they just say simply that eGPU support in High Sierra does not support the internal displays; it only works with external displays. And so that's why when they demoed it at WWDC, the external display was actually just a, a HTC uh, Vive, the um, the uh, VR set, the VR headset. Mm -hmm. So your second screen was just the VR headset, didn't it? But if you wanted to do it with a Mac Pro or even an iMac, you'd have to have a separate monitor. And if you want to get a Retina caliber monitor with that level of uh, pixel density, uh, the only ones that exist are the LG Ultrafine displays, and they don't support external GPUs. So you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Well, but I, I think they were very calculated in that they they knew exactly who this was for. Yeah. You know, they they've the complaints that they've been getting have been saying we you know we want a Mac Pro that we could put different GPUs into because we want to do VR, right? And that Apple had abandoned people creating VR. Yeah. So by saying here's your kit and all the way we're showing it with the uh, the HTC Vive, it's very clear that this is exactly for VR developers. Yeah, VR. Um, and then as the monitor situation gets better, hopefully. Uh, you know, will and the support becomes official maybe for gamers on Mac or even people that have a Mac but dual boot it with Windows that want to play games that sort of stuff. Uh, people that edit video for a living that just need more horsepower to crank stuff out, uh, 3D uh, manipulation creation that sort of stuff. There's all kinds of uses to have a a high end graphics card when docked at home and then to have the portability of a MacBook on the go. The one thing that's striking for me is is that there are some parts where Apple's vision is very clear and apparent when it comes to the iPad, when it comes to what they're doing with Macs, and and now a little more so with what it comes to what they're doing for watch and care kit and health kit. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot less clear for things like the car that we haven't really seen any evidence of other than we statements saying that they we know that they're doing it mm -hmm. and that they know that they're doing self-driving. And, uh, and and where HomePod goes and what HomeKit's meant to be doing. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they trot out all the people that support HomeKit, but what's their, what's their end game is still a little murky. It's just a space that they want to be in, and they don't want to see it get out of hand. So for the same reason that now you're going to be able to hack together your own HomeKit stuff, you know, they just don't want to lose ground in there. They know that enthusiasts drive a lot of these platforms. 
So there's there's things that are very core essential to their vision and their business, and then there are things that are, for lack of a better word, hobbies. And HomeKit is is you know they've put a placeholder there, they've got people using it, but it's still hobby for them. They got to be in the space. Yeah, I think that you have to have a foot in the door. Wearables are the same way. Definitely. What story would you like to talk about that we haven't already been addressed? Oh, I mean, there was so much from WWDC, but I mean, I think that we've run the gamut here. You know, there's new hardware out, um, new MacBook. Uh, we ran a review um, that you can check out, the 13-inch the MacBook without touch bar. Uh, we will be having, in the coming days, uh, MacBook Pro reviews um, uh, with touch bar, and we also had the 12-inch MacBook review. And then, obviously, we, we talked about the iPad Pros, the 10.5 and uh, 12.9. Those will be coming in the coming days as well, so keep your eyes peeled for them. All right. Uh, I should mention that, by the way, I own, in spirit of full disclosure, I own some Apple stock. And uh, so take it with a grain of salt. Take it for what you will. But this is. I do not own shares in Apple or any of the companies that I cover. And on that bombshell, this is episode 125 of the Apple Insider podcast. And Neil, where can people find you on the internet? You can find my musings on appleinsider.com. Uh, including a very popular article that uh, said to only install iOS 11 beta 1 if you hate yourself. Um, and you can uh, yell at me about it and tell me I'm an idiot on Twitter at this is Neil N-E-I-L. All right, I'm Victor Marks, and thank you for joining us. <laughs>